the show that brings you in where the magic happens. Welcome to the writer's room. Hello and welcome to Sif Pop Writer's Room. I'm your host Aaron, but not that Aaron, of course. And today I'm joined by Sif Pop writer Robert. Hello. We write for SifPop.com, providing you with movie reviews, best ever challenges, and other interesting movie-related articles. So make sure you check out the website SifPop.com to keep up with all those. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to start off here with the pitch, which is now, so that's great that we're still on schedule. Uh, after that, we're going to move on to the coming attraction, where we give our thoughts on what is coming out this week. And we're going to move on to the Sif topic, which will be uh, the greatest movies of all time. We're going to be talking about Seven Samurai and His Girl Friday. Uh, after that, we're going to be moving on to the B-plot, which is answering a question submitted by you guys. And we're going to wrap up with a spinoff, which is a recommendation from us. But first, let's get a chance to know our writer this week. Um, Robert, tell us a little bit about your history with movies. Yeah, so I always like to say that I got my start in movies and being interested in storytelling with watching Lord of the Rings. But then the way I really totally got into movies the way I am now was probably like uh, full on back when Avengers of Infinity War came out. Uh, that's when I decided to write a little piece, a little article on my blog. Um, and that's when that took off. So that was a start and that, and I've been going at it ever since. And then uh, when did you get writing for SifPop.com? Probably around the same time. I think it was like a year and a half ago that I really first started when I got in contact with Blake and wrote the first best ever challenge and then a couple movie reviews. Robert went a little bit more into depth on that on episode one. So if you are interested in hearing more of that, head back that way. But um, uh, one ep- one question that you're not going to hear Robert answer on episode one is this. And Robert, when you want a sub for lunch, do you go to Jimmy John's or Subway? Jimmy John's. I had bad experiences with Subway and I'm done with it forever. It, it, to me, it's a 50-50 toss up. But I respect and appreciate anybody's opinion that goes either way or you know, local shops are always great. Let's move on to the coming attraction then. So this week we're going to be talking about Unhinged. It's a new movie that stars Russell Crowe and a bunch of people, other people that you probably haven't heard of or haven't seen in much. And the plot synopsis says it's a psychological thriller that takes something we've all experienced, road rage, to an unpredictable and terrifying conclusion. So Robert, you saw the, the trailer for this. You've checked out the IMDb page amongst some other things. What do you think about this movie? I think it does look kind of interesting. I'm a fairly big Russell Crowe fan, and I don't think this looks like it's going to be the best movie or even in my top 25 or 50 movies of the year, uh, if that many movies end up coming out this year. But I think it'll be perfectly fine and enjoyable for what it is. I kind of tend to appreciate and just enjoy this sort of B movie. I think I think it'll be fun for what it is. Sure. So, so what do you think on a scale of like, you think you're going to check it out opening weekend, maybe catch a matinee, you're going to wait to rent it or until it's on a streaming service you already pay for, you're just not interested in this movie. Depending on how, how, uh, theaters are, I think it would be a matinee for me. I like to see just movies like that. Just like to hang out on a Tuesday night, something like that. Just go watch the movie. I like to see anything that I can in theaters. So it would probably be a matinee for me. Okay. Yeah, I um I think this has the highest potential of matinee for me, uh, and a lot of that is going to depend on if this movie somehow happens to get like a ninety percent or above on Rotten Tomatoes. That's always going to be the stipulation with this. Uh, but as of right now, I think I'm I'm bordering between just not interested in streaming. Okay. Which again could be bumped up, or if this movie releases and it has like a sixteen percent, then it's 
it's not even going to be on my radar anymore and I'm still I'm going to be farther than just not interested but I don't know something about this movie just nothing nothing really cl- clicks um and, and I'm not sure about what it is but there's no, there's also not much about this movie that gives me any hope taking a look at the director he doesn't have hardly any experience he's a no namer this is the movie with the biggest budget that he's ever done which probably is doesn't look like that big of a budget so I'm not saying directors that don't have a name make bad stuff. I mean, you look back at Ryan Johnson's Brick, and he was a no-name when he made that. But I don't know. It just, it's a little uneasy that we haven't heard anything about this guy, especially when he's done a couple movies already. So, I mean, that's just a huge, huge point off for me. And I, I just don't really connect with Russell Crowe in this, in this role. I don't think this role is right for him. He's a very... He's a very hit or miss actor for me. I mean, I just watched Gladiator with my wife, and he's amazing in Gladiator. Despite not being a great movie, I, I really like him in Body of Lies, and kind of same thing with Next Three Days. He's he's a very hit or miss actor. He's really good in Insider, which is also a great movie. I I personally like him in Les Miserables, but I know I'm the outsider in that. I don't think this is a right role for him. What do you think? You know, I actually agree with you with a couple movies you just listed there. I think he's overly criticized for Les Mis. Uh, the singing isn't up to the standard of the others, but I think he, he's a good actor. So I think he does the role well. And then the next three days is where you really hit it for me. Uh, I think that this one unhinged is going to be a really similar kind of movie to the next three days in the sense that it's just this kind of weird plot that doesn't really make a lot of logical sense and probably wouldn't happen in real life. But it's a good movie to just be like, hey, you want to go to the movies tonight? Yeah, let's go see Unhinged, eat some popcorn, hang out, make fun of it afterwards. But, you know, still enjoy yourself while you're at the theater. It kind of reminded me when I was watching the trailer of The Gift with Jason Bateman and Joel Edgerton from a few years back. This one thing happens and then you can't shake this this creepy guy. And I like that movie. I'm not saying it's going to be up to the standard of that, but I think uh, Russell Crowe is doing something similar to what Edgerton is doing in there, just based off the trailer. And I did find it interesting that in the trailer, it listed him as Academy Award winner. You know, they're still milking that from back in 2001 with Gladiator. He hasn't been nominated for an Oscar since 2002 with Beautiful Mind. He can play that gruff kind of guy like in The Nice Guys. But overall, I don't think it's going to be great. But I think it'll be definitely worth a watch for just to turn your brain off and enjoy something slightly entertaining. Yeah, I mean, and also with an hour and 31 minute runtime, I mean, it's not a huge investment. You don't think that it's going to be super dragged out. I mean, I, I personally think this is maybe more fitting for like a short movie, like a 15-minute one. I'm really curious how they're going to extend it out to an hour and a half. But, you know, what what's the worst thing that happens when you spend an hour and a half at a movie theater? You could just get a bad movie, but it's not like you sat through, I don't know, something terrible and wasted your time. You might You might waste your money, but... If you're me, I have AMC stubs, so it's not that you know it's not that big of an investment for me to go sit an hour and a half. Yeah, well, and that's also a good kind of stipulation for this opening weekend matinee, or whatever. I mean, I, I don't have the closest AMC for me is 25 miles, and I have a, I live 30 seconds from a movie theater, a Marcus Theater, so they don't have any sort of subscription pro- program. And while I might pay a little bit more going to Marcus, I'm probably evening out by. By choosing to go there, but if I if I had AMC close by and I was a Stubbs Rewards whatever they call it, Stubbs A list person, th- there's a better chance I would go check this out. But as as it stands right now, I mean, I I don't really want to want to put any money towards this movie that's, that's any additional. 
But you know, like I said, if the reviews wind up being good, if you know, if, if my Twitter movie people get on Twitter and say this is actually a good time, even if it is one of those turn your brains off and have a good time, there's a chance I'll check this out. But I just currently I'm not interested. Have you um have you seen the writer of this movie? Yeah, his his last writing credit is Red Dawn in 2012. Yeah, but here's the problem with that. I'm I'm actually a pretty big defender of that movie. I think uh, I'm a big. I really like the original, and maybe it's because this is the only movie I've ever seen in advance. I saw it like a two months in advance, and I I just really had a good time. Maybe it's because it is kind of dumb and it plays off of paranoia, and it's maybe not the best movie, but it took me by surprise. It kind of kept me captivated. I. I know it's a really easy movie to make fun of, but I, I kind of really enjoyed it. Um, he also did Red Eye. Have you ever seen Red Eye? No, I haven't. But it's interesting with Red Dawn. I, I kind of agree. I, I enjoy the movie. It's just 2012 and 2020. That's an eight year gap. I wonder what's been going on with him. Uh, I had never heard of the, the writer by name. Uh, so I'm just curious why he hasn't done anything between then and now. That's true. Well, he the only movies that are really worth noting on his uh, on his reputation is that uh, he wrote Red Eye, which I also have not seen, but I've heard really good things about. He wrote Disturbia, and a pretty mediocre movie. He wrote Red Dawn, which most consider to be really bad. I mean, it has like a like a single digits on Rotten Tomato score, and the IMDb is not kind to Red Dawn. 2012. Uh, and the only other real writing credit that he has is upcoming. He is currently writing Gremlins 3. And so I, don't, I wonder if, you know, he probably wrote Red Eye. And then because he wrote Red Eye and people seem to enjoy that, then they they gave him uh, a chance to write Disturbia. And that had its crowd. Not a ton of people were that crowd, but a, a ton of people were at least interested in seeing that movie. And then he got Red Dawn. And then, I, I don't know, but by the time you you look back and how Disturbia had really mixed reviews and Red Dawn's had generally bad reviews. I mean, who wants to hire that guy? But at the same time, Skip Woods keeps on getting work. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it could be a nice little comeback story. Go from making mixed review movies to making another mixed review movie. Um, but I think that might be its ceiling. Yeah. Another actor of note, I, I really like Jimmy Simpson. I think that he is incredible in most things I see him in, especially in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Westworld. I think he's just really great in that. It doesn't look like he has a terribly big role in the movie, but he is third bill. But maybe it's just because he's a kind of recognizable name. And so they wanted to put that out there, especially with Westworld still being really popular. You know, you want to exploit that. But I like him. I think he's a positive. I'd really like uh, to see him and more stuff. And so uh, there's a chance I'll check that out because of him. He's maybe a positive, but also this main actress, I have no idea who she is. And that doesn't always mean that, that that's a bad idea. I mean, you look at happy death day when that came out and Jessica Roth was, was the lead actress and I had no idea who she is, but I, I love her. I think she's outstanding and she's really great for those roles. Or you look at uh, Emma Stone and super bad and it's like, who is that girl? But I immediately love her. Uh, but she has, I don't have her name written down here because I didn't think it was that important, but she, she apparently was in the mortal instruments and the mortal engines, mortal engines. Sorry. And that was a, that's a big blockbuster movie that totally tanked. I never saw that one. So I, I, just, I don't recognize her at all. She doesn't really look like somebody that I want to like. Uh, and maybe it's just the trailer wants us to pit that way. Maybe it wants us to see both sides because the, the trailer is a really interesting thing where I almost sympathize a bit with Russell Crowe 
his his character. I mean, he obviously goes way too far, but I, I understand why he's doing what he's doing. I, right. I have a very similar feeling of the comic book, The Killing Joke, for this, where it's, it's just this theme of anybody that has one bad day just has, has the capacity to just snap and to go off on society. And you never really know what that person is going to do when they snap. And it just sounds like he's having a really bad day. So it's to me, this sounds like, all right, well, let's take the killing joke. Let's take away all the comic book things about it. Let's take away any aspect that could relate this person to the Joker. And let's make it take place in a car for to be unique. Or not take place in a car, but deal primarily with cars. Yeah, I, I think it does seem to follow that storyline a little bit. I think that's part of what draws me to it. It just... Um, looks like an interesting character from Russell Crowe and the actress that you were just talking about, Karen Pistorius. I looked up her IMDb. When I first saw her in the trailer, I thought it was Rebecca Hall for a minute. So maybe, I don't know, that had something to do with it. It just looks like so- someone who could be a, a good, you know, leading actress in Hollywood. Um, and the kid is also, he was in the Child's Play remake, which I actually saw because I had free tickets to a Stuber advanced screening and then it was full when I got there. So might as well see child's play. He was, he was good in it. Um, so there's people who were solid in it. And then of course you got Russell Crowe with the leading in the leading role. But I think the, the music in the trailer was really good. It really fit the, the whole mood. Um, it had, you know, that driving action kind of music, but also did something a little bit unique. Wasn't the, you know, the typical Inception kind of music that you hear in a lot of trailers these days. And then there was, there was the shot at the very end. I don't know if we watched the same trailer, but there was the shot at the very end of a, seemed like a big semi truck, just pancaking this other, this other car, like a small sedan or or no, it was pancaking a cop car. Uh, That's why it stood out to me. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. I mean, you bring up some good points. The, uh, the music in this trailer was great. I always appreciate a good use of heart shaped box. Uh, and it didn't. And it was a, a little bit different of a take than uh, than the, the original Nirvana, which is my favorite Nirvana song. It, it, but it also it accents things in a in a really really fitting way. Um, it, it built the intensity, and it it made me. It really put me in a moment. And yeah, I, don't know, I just I, I really like that song. I really like uh, the use of that song. One of my favorite modern day trailer trends is to take older songs and have different remixes of them. And we've seen when Jurassic world came out, they did the the piano version of the original Jurassic world theme and uh, new mutants. The first trailer, if that movie ever comes out, they had a really cool uh, instrumental version of a popular song that I can't think of right now, but um, it, it seems to be a common trend. It's one of the ones I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy that Hollywood is doing, but it's a song that's in a trailer that is not part of the movie. Most likely it's not going to get me in that scene. Yeah. I think it just added to the overall mood of the trailer for me. Um, it, it just made it, made it interesting. I watched the trailer. I was like, you know what? I thought this was going to be completely bland and I wasn't going to be interested at all, but I came away from watching it and be like, Hey, you know what? If theaters are open and uh, I'm in a good position to go see this, maybe I'll just go see it because I want to, go see a movie well and here's another question that that brings about how much money you think this is going to make in the box office not much maybe 10 million see i'm not sure about that because i think that there are so many people that are just longing to do something normal that they are going to to want to go to a movie no matter what movie it is because if you want to go to a theater now what do you are they still showing birds of prey and onward even though they're on 
on the on digital platform. I mean, maybe they're showing Scoob since that never got a proper theatrical re- release. Like, is it is it just going to be a theater full of unhinged? And I'd go pay money to go see that Tenet IMAX trailer a million times. Yeah, but I, I wonder if it's if it's going to be kind of that. I, I just really miss going to a theater. I really miss that experience. And this movie doesn't look half bad, so why not? On the other end of that, it also might be this movie looks half bad. So I don't know if I'm going to go see this. I'm going to wait for something like Tenet, just wait a couple more weeks. If I was just a casual moviegoer, I would not necessarily be interested in going to see this movie, you know, just to get back to normalcy. You know, I would go out and do something else. Uh, It doesn't have to be sitting in a room with other people who might be infected. So if I, if I was going to finally go back to the movies, I would wait for something big like Tenet or Wonder Woman or something like that. But since I'm the person who just loves to go to the movies, just to go to the movies, that's why I think I would go. But just in general, I don't think it it would be that that kind of draw. Well, and I think also it doesn't matter. I think I think everybody's a, at least a little bit of a movie person. Everybody at least loves going to the theaters a little bit, and so everybody not being able to have that experience for a couple months, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's not that. It's not that people choose not to. It's that they've been told they can't. It's because there's been no no options for them to. I think that that plays a little bit into it. But like my grandparents, even if they were active moviegoers, like they're not going to go see this movie. They might wait for something, and I don't know when they're gonna when they're gonna be able to catch something that they might actually enjoy. I mean, perhaps Mulan. I don't know, but it might it might be August or September by the time they find something they can enjoy. And they're definitely not going to go see this one. But I think your average you know, high school's out for for summer um, college is is out for summer break some people are still still have limited work schedules i think i think this movie has a lot potentially going for it that is related not at all to the movie so right we'll just have to see yeah like you said i think there's the chance but overall i don't know if it would be that big of a draw and like we said it doesn't look too great it just looks good enough to maybe get people to go to the theater yeah Really good. All right. Um, you have anything else to add about that? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. Cool. Well, it sounds like we're both on a similar page, but because I don't get movies for free, I am a little bit less interested in seeing this than you. Yeah. If I were in your position, I would not just go to see it, but with AMC stubs, then it puts me in the position to be like, yeah, why not? Well, hey guys, before we move on, we've got to talk about Manscaped for just a little bit. Manscaped is the best in men's grooming. They offer precision-engineered tools for all areas of your body, especially the sensitive ones. Now, I told you last week that I wouldn't support a product that I don't love and use myself, and since then, I've gotten to use these products more, and I've gotten to try some other products, and I know you're going to love them because I've loved them. Now, last week, I told you about the Lawnmower 3.0, and to jog your memory, or if you managed to not hear that last week, the Lawnmower 3.0 is a third-generation electric trimmer with ceramic blades as opposed to metal ones to avoid nicks and irritation and it even comes with link guards uh, charging stand a 90 minute battery an led light to illuminate where you're trimming and a 7000 rpm super quiet motor with the lawnmower 3.0 you'll never need another trimmer or razor for your body again but the products that i love at manscaped are not just the lawnmowers he also told you last week about the crop reviver which gives you an extra spritz of freshness especially especially after a long day it's a great thing to just come home from work and use i told you about the crop preserver 
which is an anti-chafing ball deodorant that is used for perfect hot summer days uh, like now. And I told you about this travel bag made from really good quality materials and uh, how there's a convenient side pouch in the uh, in the side of it, perfect for storing uh, some smaller items, but also it's a great uh, storage place for your any of your grooming qualities for at home or on the go. And I also told you about their boxers, which is definitely the favorite pair of boxers that I own, and I'm really looking forward to getting some more pairs. Uh, I also told you that you can even order the Perfect Package 3.0, which includes nearly all of that plus some extra fun stuff and all that is still 100% true I still love all these products you could still get all of these products but I've also got a chance to try a couple other products that I'm sure uh, you're gonna love because I've loved them so uh, there's a new cologne that frankly I was a little skeptical about since I already have a cologne that I really enjoy and uh, and one that I really love and this bottle looked maybe a little expensive but I really like this scent and I really like the bottle that it comes in and it the it travels a long way so while it may be a relatively small bottle I, I feel like I'm gonna need, uh, gonna get a lot of use out of it and uh, the scent is really good it's got like this this citrus smell to it and it's uh, it's 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 bright and it's peppy but it also still carries like a like a manly kind of smell to it and it's uh, it's just a scent that really uh, tingles my senses um, and uh, and I'm definitely gonna be getting more of this especially with this promo that I'll tell you about in a second but I also got a chance to try their body wash and uh, and shampoo which I didn't actually use it for the shampoo because I have one that I love that's really special for um, for my my thinning hair and um, and I'm definitely gonna be getting more of this body wash though because I really like it. I'm switching from my regular body wash that I also liked, but I'm going to start using this one because it has this active pH balance uh, ingredient to it to make sure that my body's chemistry stays right. And and it has it's made with aloe vera to make my skin feel good and to reduce any irritation. And it has just a scent that it, it just makes me feel good about myself. And I'm you can order uh, that on a subscription basis, so they'll send you a bottle every month. It's relatively cheap for a subscription service like that. You know, it's about uh, I think eight ninety nine if you sign up for the um, for for it to be delivered every month through your door. But here's the, here's the deal: if you go to manscape.com, you put whatever you want in the cart. Again, my top recommendations are going to be: you got to get their boxers, you got to try uh, this ball deodorant, and you. You can't go wrong with the lawnmower 3.0. Uh, you put whatever you want in the cart, as much as you want or as little as you want, and they will give you 20% off of your order and free shipping. So that is 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. You have to use the promo code SWR, like Sif Pop Writer's Room. So uh, go order some stuff. Let me know what you ordered. Let me know how you're enjoying it. I would love to hear some feedback. But for now, we're going to get back on the show and dive into our Sif topic. All right, well, let's start off with The Seven Samurai. The Seven Samurai is a 1954 Japanese movie. You may have heard of it, and if you haven't, then you have definitely heard or seen of the things that it has influenced. The, the synopsis of this movie is a poor village under attack by bandits recruits seven unemployed samurai to help them defend themselves. Now, it's a pretty basic plot structure, and it's it's a it's very character-driven piece. It's, a, of course, foreign, so you're dealing with subtitles. It is a three-and-a-half-hour movie, but it, it is one of the most impactful in society today. So, Robert, have you seen this movie? Not until I watched it for this podcast. Nice. And uh, why is that? I don't know if there was any specific reason. I just – it wasn't really on my radar. It wasn't on any streaming services, didn't have any particular draw to me. 
So yeah, I just, I just hadn't seen it. Yeah, I also had not seen this movie before this podcast, but one of the reasons why we picked this movie is because we really wanted to. Um, the reason I haven't seen it is because it's three and a half hours, and that's just a huge time commitment. And there aren't many movies that are longer than that. And even if there are, like, you know, you're talking The Godfather or you're talking The Lord of the Rings Extended Cuts. And I- I'm even that way where I kind of... I really like longer movies. I I wish that movies got director's cuts whenever they wanted to. I wish that that we would make it a norm to release movies that are at least three hours in length in the theaters, like which I really applaud Endgame for doing that. But you know, especially this major blockbuster that has a lot riding on it, when most of the movies before that are two two and a half hours, they're like, nah, we're just going to go three, and people are going to enjoy it. But but three and a half hours is just a huge commitment especially to talk about, you know, it's an older movie, it's black and white. It feels like it's three and a half hours long. It has subtitles. And so sometimes that could be a little distracting. And there's a lot of dialogue in this movie. So you have to be paying attention pretty much the whole time. So I've owned this movie for a while. I bought it on digital because it was on sale. I know it is available to stream on HBO Max if you have that. It is part of the Criterion Collection. Uh, it was originally released 50 minutes shorter in the United States. That was until the 1990s. It was among the first movies to use assembling a team as a plot element. It was also among the first movies to use multiple cameras, which they did especially in the fight scenes. It has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, an 8.6 on IMDb, which, by the way, is 19 of all time. It was a 98% 98 on Metacritic, and it was nominated for the Academy Awards for costumes and set decoration. The BBC voted this movie the best foreign language film of all time in 2018. It and of course it has influenced so many of the movies that we have had since then. So most notoriously is the Magnificent Seven, both the 1960 version and the 2016 version. And then sequels to that being The Return of the Seven in 1967 or 1966, The Guns of the Magnificent Seven in 1969. The Magnificent Seven Ride in 1972, and the 1998-1990 TV series The Magnificent Seven. There's also another remake around that time in 1970 called The Invincible Six, which is a little bit different. Um, And then there's even a space-themed one. It's called Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980, which that's the one I'm most interested in checking out in all of these. And then there's a steampunk anime series called Samurai 7, released in 2004. There's a movie called Seven Swords, released in 2005, but also... The, the, the basic plot structure is the same for Pixar's A Bug's Life. And there's also two Star Wars properties that have this same structure. One of them is a Clone Wars episode called The Bounty Hunters, and of course the recent Mandalorian episode 4. Robert, have you seen any of the, the movies that have been influenced by The Seven Samurai? I haven't seen any of the Magnificent Seven iterations or any of those other ones that you mentioned, but being the basic movie watcher I am, I have seen A Bug's Life and the Star Wars properties, though I don't remember those specific episodes and what they were about, you know, taking influence from this movie. So the only one that I can remember specifically is A Bug's Life out of those three. The the one of the Clone Wars, I don't know because I'm working my way through Clone Wars, so I haven't got there yet. But the Mandalorian one is the one that's directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. It involves um, the village that the Mando shows up to. I believe that's the first one with Gina Carano. Okay. And he's hanging out with the village people, but they're being raided by bandits. It's the exact same plot structure. It's just turned into a 40-minute movie. 
The only one of these that I have seen besides A Bug's Life and The Mandalorian episode is the 2016 version of The Magnificent Seven. So that's kind of my only frame of reference for these. But uh, enough with all of the talk. Let's give it a rating. Robert, did you like it, love it, dislike it, hate it? Or did you think Seven Samurai is just okay? I am firmly in liked it. Not any more, not any less. I know that'll probably be um, unpopular uh, because... I went to log it on letterbox, just have putting it as a three and a half out of five stars. And out of everyone else that I'm friends with on letterbox, I was the, there was only one other person who had it that low. Everyone else was between a four and a five. Um, but I kind of see it the way I look at citizen Kane, where you appreciate the incredible uh, influence that it's had on other movies ever since it came out. And you realize that, it's you know so influential and so great for doing that but at the same time i was kind of bored at certain points i felt like it took a long time for them to assemble the seven samurai and then it also took a long time for them to train the villagers you know and prepare for the bandits to attack and uh the love story just seemed a little bit out of place to me um but i i do really really appreciate the the influence that it had and i saw that while I was watching the movie. So in my head, I'm thinking like, yes, I, I see where people think this is great. But I think when you watch a movie like this, that's had such a heavy influence, then there's a tendency to put it up on a pedestal and be afraid to say that anything's wrong with it. So like I said, I, I wasn't super into the story just because it takes such a long time. I knew, know you were talking about how you kind of appreciate long movies. And I do too. But for me, this one just moved a little bit too slowly. To quote J.K. Simmons from Whiplash, it's not quite my tempo. I I thought it was good, though. I I did appreciate the themes. I did appreciate the action and the way that it was made. Um, And and there were moments that I really, really loved. But overall, I thought it was it was good, but not great. If but that's judging it that if it was a movie that just came out today. Well, I got a follow-up question to that then. Do you think, so you're in the like this category, but you think it is too long. Do you see yourself watching this movie in the future? Probably not, to be honest. Like I said, I was getting a little bit bored and I was, when, when an intermission came on, I was like, man, this just shows how long this movie is. And I know people are probably not going to listen to any more episodes I'm on because, because I have this opinion. I probably wouldn't watch it again, but I do, like I said, I really appreciate the influence that it's had. And I recognize its greatness because of that. Okay, well, that's fair. Uh, I am going to say that I love this movie. And I'm going to say that because you're right. Not much of it feels original anymore. But you, you can see where this was largely influential in filmmaking after it. And you have to give credit to that. And so we both we're both on the same page of it's not the most original movie. It would be like if you watch the original Star Wars for the first time as an adult in 2020, like you can understand why people love it. You can understand how it's influenced pop culture, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a good experience with it. I just take note of those things and say that I love this movie and I, I think it, it feels like three and a half hours. And if I'm willing to sit down for three and a half hours, I, I would be willing to watch this again. I do like longer movies, but that's also not saying that I want a three and a half hour cut of, I don't know, unhinged. So, 
I don't want three and a half hours of walking and talking unless Sorkin's writing it. I want to give credit where credit is due and say that if I had seen this movie before I'd seen The Magnificent Seven, before I'd seen really most movies, that I would appreciate this a lot more. Now, I, there are a few, quite a few differences between this and The Magnificent Seven. So again, I've only seen the 2016 version. And I have not seen the 1960 version, so I don't know how closely those are adapted. But there's a couple of differences, and some of them I really appreciated more in The Seven Samurai, and some of them I really appreciated more in The Magnificent Seven. Like, there is a much more specific focus on training the townspeople in The Magnificent Seven. Where Seven Samurai covers that, it's still the samurai doing most of the work. Whereas in The Magnificent Seven, it's, it's, it's really collective effort. There's also a couple plot threads that they leave behind. A lot of that is for the sake of time because you don't always want to remake this into a three and a half hour movie. But there's a lot of similarities, a lot of difference. And I think that both movies are better for them. Uh, while there was a lot that I've seen in other places, there was enough that was interesting and new to me. And honestly, while this movie was made in 1954, it really feels like it could have been made today. I mean, you think back in 1954, this movie shot in black and white, but they had color in the 30s. So that was a a specific choice. Part of it could have been it was cheaper to shoot on black and white and it was already way over budget. Part of it could have been an aesthetic choice. Part of it could have been just culturally, maybe Japan um, didn't do color film yet. At least in America, we had it in the 30s. There's there's a lot of reasons why we do that. But I maybe choose to think that Kurosawa is making an artistic choice here to to make this feel uh, a certain tone. What do you think? Yeah, in regards to it not necessarily feeling original anymore, that's not necessarily how I felt. Like I like I said, I recognized how it influenced things. And to reference Letterboxd again, I saw one review for Apocalypse Now. Someone said, I didn't really like this because it reminded me a lot of Kong Skull Island. And it's like, that's that's not how I felt. It was just, it was kind of the story that really kind of kept me from loving it. But as for the black and white aspect of it, I, I thought that worked really well. Yeah, I don't I don't really have a ton of thoughts on that part specifically, but I really overall uh just to get back to a couple other things. I I do think it's pretty methodically and deliberately paced and I think that's definitely intentional. So that's kind of the thing where you are on board or you're not. And for that aspect, I wasn't totally on board, but the black and white didn't necessarily take away for, take away from the quality for me. A lot of times when I watch a movie in black and white, I have trouble keeping faces and characters straight for whatever reason. Maybe it's just because I'm used to seeing colored movies and that's how I recognize people's faces more often. It was uh, a little difficult for me to keep the characters straight at first. So it was a lot of paying attention and, you know, trying to keep track of the story and keep everything straight, even though it is pretty much like a pretty small story. You know, it's just the one village. They have to find some guys to come help. And then there's an attack, but it's really, it takes a long time to to tell that simple story, but yeah, overall, I appreciated how it was made. Yeah, to go to build off of your, I don't really relate to black and white movies. I I I have a similar experience. I have a hard time matching characters to to who they are, and maybe it's because they're black and white, or maybe it's because traditionally the the movies that were made back in that time didn't focus as much on that because you knew who these stars were, especially in a lot of these American Hollywood movies. You knew who Charlie Chaplin was. You knew who Cary Grant was. Even even the smaller roles, you really 
knew who they were or it just wasn't important. It wasn't something that that people necessarily spent a ton of time on. And I, I struggled with the same thing. And, and a big part of this movie is because the costume designs are like they're great, but everybody looks the same because everybody is wearing robes and in a similar fashion. Uh, I mean, the only way you can really tell is by sometimes facial structure, sometimes hair structure. You just have to find those specific things. Sometimes it's the way that people talk, but I mean, a lot of these samurai seem to talk in a similar way. A lot of the villagers seem to be talking a similar way. I, it was probably until about intermission that I really felt like I had a, at least okay grasp on these characters. But one thing that I was not expecting is I really didn't expect this movie to be this funny because the Magnificent Seven 2016 is, but that's because every movie today has comic relief in it, especially when you have Chris Pratt in the, in the cast. But I straight up laughed probably seven or eight times in this movie. And it's, it's not a lot, but this is a very dark, serious subject matter, especially when you get to the nitty gritty of the villagers. And I, I really enjoyed myself. I loved these characters, especially I don't I don't want to butcher his name, but his character is essentially a comedian. He's he's hilarious, and he's such a lovable character. I mean, I like to think that's the Chris Pat, Pratt character, but I know he's probably based off the Western instead of the Seven Samurai. Yeah, are you by chance talking about? I'm probably going to butcher butcher it too, but Kikuchio. Yes. Yeah, that's I had that written down. I thought he was easily the best performance in the whole movie. I was just thoroughly entertained every time he was on screen. Uh, he's totally into what he's doing and he just seems to be having a great time, but also delivering us a, a great performance at the same time. So I loved every time that Toshiro Mifune, that, that's the actor's name. I loved every time he was on screen. And then the character is Kambe and he is played by Takashi Shimura. He's the guy at the beginning who pretends to be a monk to save the kid from the tent. I thought he also gave a great performance, but it was like the exact opposite of the Kikuchio character. He was the quiet, reserved, calm and collected leader who always knew what to do in every situation. He was he was a great leader. He always followed protocol. He always followed rules. So I, I thought those two gave great but completely opposite performances. And I really appreciated the two of them. And especially with the Kanbei character, it did a really good job of showing the passage of time because at the very beginning of the movie, he has his head completely shaven, but by the end of the movie, he's got a little bit of stubble on the top of his head, and you can see it growing as the movie goes on, and I was noticing that. So I thought that was a really small but really important detail, and it's I, I really like that Kurosawa paid attention to that sort of thing and showed, hey, look, a little bit of time has been passing, and this is how you can this is how you can tell. So that's just really, really good and impressive impressive filmmaking too. Yeah, what did you think about the fights themselves? I thought the fights were good. I, I liked the parts when uh, they were trying to surprise the samurai when they were walking into the hut and the one guy was going to hit him on the head with a stick. Uh, that's one part that I really did laugh at every time. And then leading into the other action scenes at the end, I, I to be honest, could lose track of what was going on here and there. But again, I think that's because of the black and white. I couldn't tell who was a bandit, who was a villager, and who was a samurai. But overall, just the aesthetic of the action was really, really great. Um, so I see where the where the influence comes from. I actually looked up a YouTube video after I finished the movie and saw some side by side shots of, you know, Seven Samurai on one side and then like Lord of the Rings on the other, showing the exact shots that 
modern directors have taken from the seven samurai so it's it's just like i said really crazy to look back and see just how much this has influenced modern action yeah and i i think there's also two other really big pros i have about the action in this movie and one of them is that they're they're very hesitant to cut in the action uh, part of that you know they filmed with three cameras on most action scenes and that's a pretty common for hollywood today but they they cut them down so much whereas with foreign films you really get to see the fights drawn out my wife and i also just watched the raid movies not too long ago and those cuts are generally really long and and they're not they're not quite one cut level but they're at least like a noticeable different than american movies especially you know i i love the mcu but they they cut those action sequences way too much and they're really hard to follow and some sometimes the born movies can really get that way especially the more recent ones but i i always have a sense of where I'm at and I always have a sense of who is fighting and I always have a sense of exactly who is winning. And that's a really big pro for the movie. And the other one is they actually take strategy into account, which is part of their defense plan and also is in Magnificent Seven. But they're they're, they're not just, we're going to sit here, we're going to defend our ground, he's going to walk in and we're going to surround everybody and kill him. It's, it's, well, we don't have to worry about people coming in here because that's a death trap. We don't have to worry about people coming here. We're going to put barricades up here so people can't come in here. We're going to we're going to lure them all into one area, which is also a pretty common tactic that we've seen in movies recently. I think notably of The Walking Dead in season three when they're in the prison. They make like one hole in the fence for zombies to come through so you can just contain everything there. And, uh, and Infinity War did the same thing. They let the breach go in, in Wakanda because they would rather – fight everybody there as opposed to fighting everybody everywhere and it's a if you see the strategy play out and you see when the action finally happens when the village is being attacked you see how all that planning actually made a difference yeah and i really did appreciate the planning sequences too they had that that canvas out that had the map of the entire the entire village and they had a circle to represent each one of the bandits and every time the bandits would attack and they would kill a certain amount they would cross off a circle. And I, and I really like to see, you know, this is their progress so far and this is how they're doing. So I, I thought that was, that was really great. And I also really appreciate uh, the themes. There's, there's one line in there that says, this is the nature of war by protecting others. You save yourself. If you only think of yourself, you'll only destroy yourself. You know, that's a really impactful line in general about selfishness and about thinking of others. Of course, altruism, putting others before yourself is a really important thing just in your everyday life. But then especially in this sort of situation, you know, if you're not thinking of the people around you, everyone is going to fail. If you're only thinking of yourself, everyone is in big danger. That idea and that theme carries over into modern movies like we've been talking about. So it's not not only just the visual action that's been carried over, but the themes too. So like I thought about that in The Last Jedi you don't want to just fight what you hate, but save what you love. You know, you don't want to fight against the other things. You want to save the people around you by, you know, doing your best to think of others instead of thinking of yourself in such a such a big way. Um, so I thought that was really good. And I know you want to talk about the ending, too. Um, so I don't know if you want to do that now. Yeah, um, I think that this ending is about perfect. I think it has to go down in one of the uh, in the list of the best film endings ever, I think that the specifically the ap- the aftermath of the battle. This is one of those movies that was made so long ago that all the credits are at the beginning. So at the end is the it, it, it's just the end, and uh, and the the specific shot is a grave with or four graves 
with samurai swords sticking out of them because those are those samurai's graves. So, I mean, spoilers if that wasn't obvious at this point, but three of the samurai end up living and four of them wind up dying. And so you see them looking, they're on a hill, the sun is setting and it's, it's really, it's really, it's a really beautiful shot. It's very reminiscent of me to, to when Luke is, is looking at the two suns setting on Octo and he, his ending, it's, it's very, it has that same feel. It has that same emotion pack to it. Uh, if you like that ending, if you don't like that ending, it probably has a pretty different emotion, but it also has this line, like the very last line says that though the victory belongs to those peasants, not to us. And I think that's a really powerful line uh, said by our main samurai. And he it just demonstrates so much humility and he demonstrates so much uh, value in, in these people who are considered peasants in this society that's built upon honor. He respects the fallen, but also he, he attributes that they are only pieces in the grand scheme of things that for him, it's on to another battle to fight. And for the village people, their whole world is changed and they get to live in that victory. And I just think that this this quote belongs on more of the best movie quotes ever live or ever list. And I really think that this this ending it has to be top five, maybe top, top 10, maybe top five for me. Yeah. And I think this this is the other theme that I really love in the movie. It doesn't only demonstrate the humility that you were talking about, but it it kind of it's not a happy ending, you know, for the main characters at least. It's a happy ending for the villagers, very much so, because like you said, they're the ones who really are the winners in this situation. But for the samurai, you know, they talked about how they've done so much fighting in their life and they're kind of tired of it at this point. Uh, they're only they're only helping out these villagers because they're gonna get food every day. You know, it's not like they're going to get money and be able to go live a lavish life after they help defeat the bandits or anything like that. They're just trying to survive. So now that they finished this one project mission, whatever you want to call it, they're just on to the next thing. And you could see just how difficult a life for, for a samurai is at this point in time. So it's kind of like it's the idea about knowing your place in life. And these samurai know that they're probably past their peak and it's a victory for the villagers, but not necessarily for them because they don't know what's going to come next for them in their own lives. That was really, really powerful. And I looked it up a little bit since this came out in the fifties. It was, it was right after the end of world war two. So this was really a, a big idea and big uh, mindset for people in Japan in general, just after the end of world war two, I really wish I knew more about that period in actual history to know the kind of impact that these themes would have at the period of time when it was released. And I'm sure it's so much more powerful than I can even understand uh, just watching it as a white guy in America here in 2020. But I think when it came out, this had to have been incredibly meaningful, not only seeing this awesome action and seeing these great characters, but seeing that theme played all the way through. So when I said I'm only, I'm in the liked it category and I seem like I didn't really like it. I really, really appreciated a lot of the things that, that it was saying and that it was doing. So that's kind of where that's kind of the biggest plus for me is these these really poignant and really important themes that are, you know, really culturally fulfilling for for the people of Japan and they're still resonant for us today. Well, and this is a really good bridge to really the last point I want to make about this movie, and that's that you talked about appreciating this movie, but not necessarily wanting to revisit it. And I mentioned in the uh, in the legacy part of this movie that 
it, it was released in theaters initially 50 minutes shorter. So uh, two hours and 50 minutes was still an incredibly long, well, that would have been two hours and 40 minutes, was still incredibly long for a movie of, of that time. And it was that way until the 1990s, until they finally got the three and a half hour cut into U.S. homes and U.S. theaters. But it, it's still such a long cut. I have no idea where you could edit 50 minutes out. I don't have a clue, and I know you're a big fan of Lord of the Rings, and I really like the movies, specifically Two Towers, I think is is just brilliant, but I can find 50 minutes to cut out of each of those movies. I cannot find 50 minutes to come out, cut out of The Seven Samurai, and I think that speaks volumes that we talked about the dialogue being so tight and there being so much of it. Like It's it's one of those movies that you, you kind of can't look away. I've been, I've been watching a lot of foreign films recently, and I've noticed this being being something that uh, at least on the first watch i i really can't look away it, it's like parasite you can't look away because if you look away for 10 seconds that's it consider the next half hour a loss for you and i really felt that almost every second of this three and a half hour movie was necessary and i i like to believe there's a longer cut out there somewhere i don't i don't know that i desire to see any longer of a cut but like i said i think i could find places to cut out of even the theatrical editions of the rings especially Fellowship of the Ring. Well, I'm not really interested in getting into a debate about Lord of the Rings because I'll be defensive till the day I die about those. But I think I would agree with you about Seven Samurai. First of all, release the Kurosawa cut. (laughs) (laughs) Second of all, I think that there's a lot of time spent in the first hour or so, you know, getting to know each samurai as they're adding each one to their team. And as as you're talking about it, I was thinking about it. I wish that part was a little shorter, but like you said, there's not really anything to cut out because you need the dialogue. You need the character building. You need to know where each one of these guys came from and why they're interested in helping the cause and all that kind of stuff. If I were to cut out anything, it would probably be maybe some of the prep with the villagers and certainly the the love story. That's the one thing, like I said earlier, I didn't really connect to at all, but that that's probably just me. Like a lot of my takes on this movie is just I'm probably on an island with with a lot of it. But yeah, I I agree with you. I, I could maybe find 20 minutes to cut out, but certainly not 50. Um, overall, it's really tightly made. I got to disagree with you about the, the love story. And part of it is because that is, is nowhere to be found in the Magnificent Seven that I watched. I mean, there might be like hints about it, but it is not as drawn out of a plot as it is in this point with our youngest warrior finding and falling in love with the a daughter of the village, which also, by the way, becomes a common plot occurrence after the Seven Samurai. But uh, that, that was one of the things that I found most refreshing. And part of it is because I feel like, yes, I've seen that in other movies, but I did not uh, really expect that from this movie that already had so much into it. And sure, maybe you could cut it out, but I think that that emotional the with the first attack and the first samurai die dies i think that that is paid off so well there when with, with seeing kind of the reactions of everybody and specifically uh, the love story because there's two different love stories one of them is young uh young boy young girl one of them is uh one of our farmers one of our main guy who uh has his wife was kidnapped by these bandits and has been made a slave there. And when he finally finds her again, this is the one I was just referring to. It's just so emotional. So it plays off so well when he finally finds her, she, she doesn't recognize him. She doesn't desire to be with him. And they, they wind up killing her. And, uh, and, and one of the samurai die in the process. And it's, it's, it's a really powerful, it's a really emotional moment. Uh, it, It leads to a big, 
a big sense of despair right before this final battle. And then also right after that, you deal with the, the younger story between the two young people and that causing some of the conflict where the villagers are not really wanting the samurai to stay anymore. At least one of the villagers doesn't want them. But to me, that stuff is some of the best parts of the movie. So I, I got to disagree with you there. But yeah, uh, just to clear up, I, I I was only mentioning the the love story between the young samurai and the young girl. Um, because I really also did find the the guy who found his wife really affecting and really emotional. But yeah, the last thing that I would mention would be one more influence that I noticed just while I was watching it would just be like the the night before the battle type of thing that you see in a lot of movies these days. So the night before they know the bandits are going to be coming and there's going to be a big skirmish or a big battle in the village, everyone's just kind of sitting around and being really introspective and thinking about everything that's been happening and preparing mentally for, for what's going to happen the next day. I think you see a lot of that uh, these days, especially most recently I can think of it was in game of Thrones. It was the episode before the battle at Winterfell. You just see all the characters talking to each other and thinking about how far they've come in the two towers. Like we were just talking about the night before the battle of Helm's deep, that just really influences a lot of stuff that, that has come since then. Uh, so that was one more influence that you hadn't mentioned that I wanted to throw out there too. Yeah, appreciate that. Well, I only got one more question for you then. Is this movie a goat? Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, when it comes to goat status, I don't necessarily take into account my rewatchability or my total enjoyment. While that's part of the factor of it, I think just the lasting effects that it's had, not only in people's minds, but how it's affected other movies and how it's influenced other movies. So I'd think without a doubt, this is this is a goat. Great. I totally agree with you. I, I think that without this movie, we would be looking at a very different action genre. I think Westerns would have looked very different because The Magnificent Seven was very influential. I think that uh, modern action movies would, would be very different and frankly, just less well done. So, so that's going to wrap it up for Seven Samurai, but we got one more movie to talk about. So the idea is that we're going to talk about one movie each week that uh, that one of us has seen that the other hasn't, and, and and another movie that the other has seen that you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so, so for this week, uh, neither of us have actually seen Seven Samurai, but we picked that movie this week because it's three and a half hours and we have a little bit extra time during uh, quarantine, self-isolation, whatever you want to call it, kind of recovering from all that. We had we had the three and a half hours to prepare for that, but we're going to talk about a shorter movie called His Girl Friday. His Girl Friday is a about a newspaper editor who uses every trick in the book to keep his ace reporter ex-wife from remarrying. It's a 1940 movie starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. It was released in 1940. It was also released before Award shows were a thing, so there are no Oscar nominations or wins for this movie, although I'm sure it would have won some. Uh, in 1993, it was preserved in the National Film Registry. It, like The Seven Samurai, also has a Criterion Collection release. It is ranked number 19 on the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs. And a year after this movie released, there was a half-hour version released with Grant and Russell returning at the Screen Guild Theater. There was a 1974 Billy Wilder version called The Front Page, which, by the way, his Girl Friday is based off of a stage play called The Front Plays, the the Front Page. So, the Billy Wilder version is more so based off of the the teleplay as opposed to the screenplay. Uh, and then there was also a 1988 film called Switching Channels, which is loosely based off of this story. So, 
Robert, you have seen this one before. I have not. I have not seen it because I didn't hear about it until you told me. That's my excuse. I don't generally seek out older movies, but um, what do you think about this movie? You like it, love it, just like it, hate it, or it's just okay? I'm firmly in love it. Um, I watched it maybe a few months ago for the first time, and I think I've seen it once or twice since, because when I find a movie I like, I just turned it on in the background and watched it a lot and just really hammered hammer it in as a movie that I love. Um, so this one's definitely a love for me. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really great. There's there's a lot a lot of good stuff. The first time I saw it, um, I think I was just scrolling through Prime Video and I saw His Girl Friday, which with Cary Grant. And I knew, obviously, I recognized the name Cary Grant. And I thought I had heard of the movie His Girl Friday, looked it up. It had good ratings on IMDb. So I figured, why not throw it on? It's only an hour and a half. And like I said, I loved it. Um, Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell have incredible chemistry in this movie. And I think that's really what drives it. That along with just the the excellent dialogue all the way through. I think it's really funny, really entertaining. But yeah, I, I think it's really great. I love it a lot. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i not as high as on this movie as you are. I am going to be in the liked it, probably low side of liked it category. I, um, I think that... You're right. The chemistry is undeniable between our two leads, but I think there's a lot of problems with it. And my biggest flaw with this movie is the first half hour plays like a like a slapstick type comedy. I mean, not so much like Three Stooges where you're literally slapsticking, but between the words and the mockery back and forth, especially the scene where Cary Grant meets the the fiance of of this reporter. Which, by the way, the original this the story has as well as the. Um, the the 1974 Billy Wilder version. Hilda is actually a guy, and he's leaving to get married. And I think this movie worked better that Hilda is a girl, and he's trying to and he's still trying to pursue her while leaving, as opposed to just quitting. I yes, think that's I, agree. I think that's a remarkable change. And but I also think that this movie is really divided because that first half hour, really up until the moment where they're having dinner, feels like a how can I keep her in town? How can I keep her from running off and marrying this guy? And it, it feels very Charlie Chaplin-esque, uh, less in in actions and more in words. And and I really enjoyed that part of the movie. I was 100% in. And then they they bring in the the murder and and the the manhunt from the person that's that's in jail. And I I just don't really care about any of that. I think it works really well but i was so invested in the first part of that story i i felt a disconnect and i i felt like there are two separate stories that are trying to be told here that i care very deeply about one and i think i would like the other one if it were just separated so i think for that reason i'm in the low side i liked it category yeah the movie it's working with two separate deadlines so there's the deadline where carrie grant's character walter finds out that hildy is going to get married the next day and she's his ex-wife and he has no idea that she's planning to, to be remarried. And then the other deadline is the newspaper story deadline. And I think that they line those two things up and make them be parallel really, really well. Um, I see where you're coming from with the two different tones and the two different kinds of movie. But I think that they carry over the comedy into the the last hour of it really well. So it starts off, like you said, straight comedy. Um, especially that that lunch scene, which is probably my favorite part of the movie, by the way, the lunch scene. But then as you get more into the to the murder case with Hildy interviewing the the convict and then him escaping, there's still the part where he and this is spoilers again, this is still the part where he hides in the desk and 
she's trying to bamboozle everyone else. Like, no, he's not here. He is here. She's saying that to, to Walter's character, you know? So I think there's, they keep that same tone while just adding an extra layer to it. I think it keeps up that fast pace the entire time. And that's something that I really enjoy. Like uh, 12 angry men. I love the older black and white movies where it's just all talking. You don't have to pay attention to a lot of, to a lot of, uh, a lot of action, but you do get to pay attention to just really witty and really well-written dialogue. In this case, it's really fun and really funny, but also pretty serious obviously because it has to deal with a murder case with the guy keeps saying i didn't mean to do it i didn't mean to do it so it has this layer of levity that is like the top layer of the movie but underneath there's something more dark and something to think about also especially with the death penalty at one point you hear someone say i have tickets for the hanging tomorrow you know like it just the just the lightness with which it's talked about it, it gives you a lot to think about especially in today's day and age where the death penalty isn't as much celebrated. And it's certainly not something where everyone goes out to watch together. You know um, it's more of something that's a really somber event and not treated as lightly as it is in this movie. So I think there's a lot of, a lot to think about as well as a lot to be entertained by with this movie. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, I think that there is a surprising amount of dark subject matter for a movie that comes out in the 1940s, uh, 1940. Exactly. But you're right, they play it off with a lightful tone, and that's probably why they were able to do it. I think you, they carry the comedy pretty well uh, for most of the second half. I think you're, you're right about that, especially the scene where Cary Grant is is interacting with the criminal in the roll-top desk, and he keeps on like telling him to shut up, or like opens it, like checks in on him, and he's like, it, then he closes it, tells him to shut up. I think that's that's some really good stuff. But again, that reminds me of that like Charlie Chaplin-esque, really fast-paced, really quick, witty, smart stuff. But I, I I don't super know that I care about the story. I, I care about the 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 crime separately that I care about the newspaper trying to get his his wife back. And I think there's a there's a story you can tell that you can merge those two. I just don't think this is the way to do it. I I, I didn't think it worked for me. And you know I'm not their audience member. Uh, a 25 year old guy living in 2020 is not what this movie was intended to reach. But I think that there's, I just I think there's a little bit too much of a disconnect, and I, I, I care about the crime story separate. And I, I have in my notes, I really wish that they would have made the second half of this movie almost like a stage play, similar to Twelve Angry Men, because I think that would have been a much better movie. And you can even maybe make it like a, a sequel or a pseudo sequel where, uh, where it's still the same characters or at least the same actors, and and you can make it just take place in that press room with the roll top desk and. I think that would have been a really fascinating movie because of the lead up, because of the, the, the first half hour. I, I, I didn't like it very much. And my favorite part of the movie is right before lunch where they, where he meets the fiance. I think that scene is just brilliant. It's hilarious. He's, he's, he's convinced that it's this old man on the bench and he, he, try, he mistakes him like five times. It's just, it, ha- it had me, it had a big smile on my face for several minutes, but I, I just don't know that I, that I connected. And, and, Here's another thing that really takes me out of this movie is that I think Cary Grant is charming. I think him as Walter is a really is a character that we like, but he is not a good character. He is very morally wrong both in terms of of trying to get Hilda to stay working as well as trying to break up their marriage. And we're talking about a guy who's trying to break up a marriage the night before the wedding. That's very rarely a good guy. I just 
I, I don't know. I also don't think, again, we're talking spoilers here. They get back together at the end, and I just don't think it's warranted. I don't think he's he's done anything to damage the reputation of of uh, Bruce. I don't think he's done anything to – not that he should damage the reputation. It's not a good thing to do. But he he's given her no reason why she shouldn't still go with Bruce. Rather, uh, he, he shows himself they have – they have such good chemistry and she shouldn't deny that. And she should choose to remain with him. I just, I'm not quite sure it's earned. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the only, one of the only other things I had that I wanted to really get to. I wanted to have a conversation about that where this whole movie, she seems like she's so uh, set on leaving to go to Albany with Bruce, her new fiance. But then as soon as she's drawn back into the newspaper game, she gets the bug for it again, where she was like, Oh, maybe this is something that I don't want to leave. And then by the end, she's saying to Walter, why are you going to let me go away with Bruce? That is the one big negative for me in the whole movie where it's like, it kind of takes away her agency the whole way through and kind of makes her just this damsel in distress character. Whereas she seemed like the strong, really, uh, well-written female character for the first hour and 15 minutes. But until the very end, you find out that she never wanted to go away with Bruce in the first place. And she was maybe just trying to get Walter to, to want her back or something like that. It was a little bit confusing to me. I don't know. Do you have, do you have any replies to the getting back together? No, I just, I think, I think we're both on the same page with that. I think, uh, I, I think for, for 1940, maybe it worked. For a movie that's an hour and a half in 1940, that's already, I mean, movies weren't made incredibly long back then. Well, actually, that's a lie because Gone with the Wind was this type of movie wasn't made terribly long. So I think it, it was just and I think it was just easier. I think I don't think that even the writers knew how to make it uh, a little bit easier, because if the play is Hilda being a guy and he is just trying to quit and leave and go marry that's a much simpler resolution than a girl who's about to run away with a guy and he's convincing her not only to get back into the newspaper production, but also uh, back in a relationship with Cary Grant. So I think probably it's just because they adapted the source material and they made, I think the right call by changing Hilda to uh, a girl. I think that the ending suffers for that. And, and, and I don't think people in 1940 probably didn't, they probably didn't care. And you know, who are we to say, but it just didn't, it didn't connect with me uh, at that point. I did want to also point out, I forgot to mention up top that this movie is available to stream on Amazon prime instant video. If you have that as well as voodoo free with ads, that's how you could watch this movie. If you should choose to watch it, compare your thoughts with mine and Robert's, but uh, that's, that's really, I think all I have to take, all I have to say about this movie, except for one, one more question. I don't understand the title. Do you have any idea why they decided to name it His Girl Friday? Because her name is not Friday. No. Nope. I don't believe takes place on a Friday. Yeah, I I don't understand the title either. Yeah, I really I really don't have any good response to that. It's just maybe it does take place on a Friday, but if it does, I don't think it's ever explicitly mentioned. And if that's the title of the movie, you would want it to be explicitly mentioned. I remember when my wife and I watched it for the first time, we were like, why was it called that? But we both enjoyed it, but I feel like the original source of the front page is a better title than that because that you know brings in the the newspaper agency and trying to convince her to stay, but also you lose that that romantic 
aspect. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know that either of them are necessarily the right title, but the front page is a much better title than his girl Friday. Yeah. I'm yeah. Like I said, I really don't know where that came from. Um, but if I could just add one more thing about the movie itself, I think the whole movie, I guess, um, with changing the character of Hildy to a girl just kind of makes it about two people reconciling and putting aside what their differences were and coming together and realizing how they can, how they can be together and what the right way to do that is. So you heard on his first honeymoon on their first honeymoon, when they first got married, Walter was, I think he left to go cover a different story because he's so engrossed in his newspaper work through all the, the happenings of this movie, the two of them find out that it's more important to be together and be in a good relationship with each other than to be good at their jobs. So I guess that's where the the romantic end comes to comes into play. But like like we said, I still don't think it's com- completely strong, but I do think it it is a little bit warranted. And I just noticed that in the course of our conversation, so that's why it might seem like I'm flip-flopping on what I said earlier. Yeah, well, I mean, the more we talk about these movies, I think we have a tendency to flip-flop partly because we've got some time to process and digest, but also like I've not talked about this movie with anybody partly because I don't know that I know anybody that has ever seen his Girl Friday. And I know people that have talked about Seven Samurai, or at least know of Seven Samurai, but I don't know that I've ever met anybody that has seen Seven Samurai. A lot of, a lot of it due to its length and age. But it's, I mean, the more we talk about movies, I think our opinions change. The more we process, think about movies, I think the the more they change. And I, I think maybe you ask me a year from now and maybe, maybe I come around with me. I, I really doubt it though. Um, I, I don't see myself rewatching this in the future. If you ask me, uh, this movie is not a goat. What do you think? I would say it's on the on the outside edges of goat. Um, I don't think it's one that everyone has to see, um, but I don't think that you're going to go wrong with seeing it either. Because I would definitely rewatch it, and I have rewatched it. I think it's a good one to throw on in the background. I just love hearing the the bang 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 dialogue with people talking all over themselves. You know, there's the scenes where they're each on the phone, not being able to hear what the person on the other end of the phone is because they're in the same room as someone else in the phone. I just think there's just a lot of fun stuff that'll get me to come back and watch it. Uh, for me, it's more of a rewatchable than a goat, I guess, um, because a lot of rewatchable movies for me aren't always perfect. And this might be that sort of situation, but I still love the movie and I'm still going to watch it a lot uh, down the road. I totally understand where you're coming from. And I think that I, I just don't, I don't think there's enough. I can, I can choose to not like a movie and still think that I would say that it's a goat, but um but almost similar to what you said with seven samurai, even though I know you liked it, but I, I don't think there's anything. I think, I think if his girl Friday never existed, I don't know that Hollywood cinema would have been any different today. I don't think there's enough of an impact on how film was done. I don't think there's an impact on, on storytelling structures or anything. This feels like a generic 1940s movie to me. This feels like anything you would have gotten back in those days, especially kind of these romantic fast talking movies. And I, I think you're right. I think the, the dialogue's really crisp. I would even argue to say maybe it should get the best screenplay nomination or win if they had Oscars back in the day. But I, I and a lot of times you're gonna get that with the stage play anyway. But I, I think I think Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell having such great chemistry is is worth watching this movie if you're at all interested in checking it out. But I don't I don't think that necess- uh, necessarily means that it's a goat. But on the next time what we talk, it's going to be a month from now. We're going to be talking about The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, which is right now available to stream on Netflix, and Dead Poets Society. So a little bit older of a movie again, a, a Western this time, and a more recent uh, but still 
older and respected movie and Dead Poets Society. We're going to be talking about those two. Gives you some time if you want to catch up and and check those out before we talk about them because we will be spoiling them. But uh, that's for next time. So now we're going to move to the B-plot. And Robert, I have a question for you, and that is what is the most creative writing you've done for SifPop.com? For SifPop.com, I haven't done a whole lot of creative writing other than you know BECs and reviews, save for one big thing. And that's when I twice spent my whole weekend watching every movie in two separate franchises and then writing about it. So in advance of X-Men Dark Phoenix, I watched the original X-Men trilogy, the three Wolverine movies, and then the modern X-Men trilogy, right? Because there's First Class, Days of Future Past, and then Apocalypse leading up to Dark Phoenix. We don't so I watched all of those in one weekend. What was that? We don't talk about Apocalypse. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have to if we're talking about the X-Men, but I wish we didn't have to. But yeah, I watched all of those in one weekend and then wrote about them and ranked them uh, on the site in advance of Dark Phoenix coming out. And Dark Phoenix was not great, but I don't think it's as bad as everyone thinks. Then I did the same thing for Fast and Furious, which I had never seen before. So that makes it a little bit different than what I did with uh, X-Men. Because with Fast and Furious, I'd heard so much that I'd, I'd really pretty much heard that they were crap. And I was not expecting anything good when I sat and watched one through eight before Hobbs and Shaw came out. But I was very, very pleasantly surprised with those. I liked a lot of those Fast and Furious movies, and I did the same thing. I wrote about each one of them and then ranked them at the end. Um, And I came up with that idea myself kind of based on I like when I'm scrolling through YouTube and I see people saying, like, I watched the Harry Potter movies for the first time or I watched Lord of the Rings for the first time. Here's my thoughts. So that's kind of where I got the idea. Um, and I did it in writing instead of in video form. So that's probably the most creative thing I've done for Sif Pop. Yeah, those, uh, those articles were really great. I remember really love reading them and so much so that I even suggested that you do the Kevin Smith universe before the Jane Silent Bob reboot came out and that never came to fruition. And frankly, dogma is just hard to get your hands on, but a lot of them are. And that's the biggest reason I didn't do it, uh, most of them are available on digital, which I do about half my movie collection on digital. But Dogma, because a a certain producer that produced the movies that I don't want to say his name, I can guess had the rights to them. Uh, he he loved the movies so much that he wanted specific like exclusive distribution rights, so he has total charge of that. So there's never there's been very limited Blu Ray releases. There's never been a digital release, and even the DVD release is fairly limited. So. Uh, it's just, that's just a hard one to get your hands on, but, uh, yeah, really, I really like those. Uh, as far as me getting creative on the site, I, I do the, the Marvel hindsight articles, or should say, uh, have done. I, I, I guess I'm almost quite done with them. I have two more movies to do, but, um, I didn't expect it to take this long, but it turns out that they take a long time to write, but I don't, I don't know that's the most creative thing I've ever done because I think that's the most effort I've ever put into writing about movies, but, um, I and with the with the hindsight Marvel articles, I I rewatched the whole MCU, trying to find connections that they set up Endgame with, and and there's a lot that I found. There's a, you can find those articles on Sifpop.com as well. But I think the most creative thing I ever did, I can't even remember what the best ever challenge was, but I decided to write about the other guys, and the other guys is a movie that I hold near and dear to my heart. It is incredibly rewatchable it's so funny i think mark Wahlberg and will ferrell have such great chemistry which is such a shame because daddy home is just terrible 
but um, but I, I think that that movie is genuinely terrific, and I couldn't find a way to express how much I enjoyed it by saying words about it. So for the best ever challenge, what I did was I just I listed a bunch of quotes from the movie. I'm just like, look, I, I can't do this justice, so I'm just gonna list a bunch of quotes. So I would, so I said things like, uh, um, aim, aim for the bushes, and uh, you know, next time you me library, and some of the some of the things that Samuel L. Jackson screams at Will Ferrell. It's just I, I had a really good time with that one because I I gotta just relive some emotions and hopefully bring out some emotions that people had watching the movie that maybe they'd forgotten about, or maybe like they saw it and they enjoyed it, but they never realized how good it actually is. I think, I think the other guy, the other guys is an underseen movie. I just, I want more people to see it. So when I make the quotes, I, <laughs> I don't feel like I'm on an, on an island. But. I love the other guys. I'm a peacock. You got to let me fly. And um, the whole in, uh, interaction about, the tuna and the lion are two of the funniest things that I've seen in movies like this decade. Um, and I, I love the other guys also. It's one of my favorite comedies. Yeah. It's, it's endlessly rewatchable and endlessly quotable. Like I, I would go on trips with people and if I'm one person that watches that movie and every morning we, we, we go, we do a back and forth painter and we go 9am, everybody have a good day every morning at 9am. And the other person always like, shut the hell up. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, it's, it's, it's a great time. We only, we have one more part of the show that we want to get to today and that's the spinoff. So Robert, what is one thing in pop culture that you want to tell everybody to watch or to avoid? Should I go with an old movie, a 2010s movie or a brand new show? I think that we've talked about old movies enough. Let's do a show. All right. So I will recommend HBO's run. Uh, it's got Donald Gleason and Merritt Weaver. The premise basically is they were in a relationship in college. They're now in their mid to late thirties and they made a deal when they were in college that if any, if either one of them ever texted the other, the word run and the other one texted it back within 24 hours, they would meet at grand central in New York and take a cross country train to Los Angeles and then decide what they were going to do with their relationship from there. So it's an, Really interesting premise to me. Plus, I absolutely love Donald Gleason as an actor. I watched all seven episodes. My wife and I did. She lo- she really loved it. I liked it a lot. Um, I think there's some things that are wrong with it. There's a few problems that I have. If you want to hear those, go listen to the Robert Thoughts movie cast where we talk about it. But overall, I think it's a high recommend. The episodes are between like 20 and 30 minutes each. There's only seven episodes. So you can sit and watch it in the time that it would take you to watch Seven Samurai. So if you're not into black and white old Japanese movies um, and would rather watch something modern, check out HBO's Run. I did not know that was only a shorter. I thought it was hour long episodes and I thought there would be 10 or so like HBO always does. Nope, just seven episodes, roughly half an hour each. And they're super fun to watch. They're not they're not heavy. They're easy to get through. Would you describe it as a, a drama, a romance, a rom-com? Romantic dramedy, I think is what I called it. Okay, kind of all the things. Yeah, and I think it bounces them all pretty well. It falters here and there, but it's it does a pretty good job. That is amazing to hear. The odds that I will go watch that is significantly higher now. Nice. Both due to the time as well as the recommendation. I had no idea anything about the show, so... Kind of HBO, I think it kind of has a corner on the market of produces the best content, and I just want to watch everything they put out there. 
So I just try to distance myself from some of the stuff just so I don't have to commit to more time. I'm still trying to catch up on some of the back catalog, but. But if you want something that's easy to watch and funny, this is, this is perfect. All right. That's exactly what I want all the time. So what do you want me to recommend or warn? Do you, uh, I have, I have a movie for each. Do you want me to, to recommend or to warn a movie? We've talked about a lot of movies that we've liked. So why don't you go with Warren? All right. I have to warn a movie. It's been out for a couple of years. I, uh, I've heard some, I've heard pe- enough people say I had a good time with it. If you shut your brain off. So I decided to watch it and I, I, I really hated vacation. The Ed Helms reboot. I've, I've heard just enough people say it's really funny if you give it a shot and it's not as bad as you think. And Chris Hemsworth has a small but amazing role in it. And I complete. I tell you in all honesty, I hated every second of the first hour of this 90-minute movie. And I found the last half hour minorly enjoyable. So maybe I'm not quite in the hate it category. Maybe I'm in the strong dislike it category because I think that there's some some okay moments in the last half hour. I think, I think the cast is great. I love them in other things. I mean, you talk about Ed Helms and in the office and in uh, the hangover movies and, and uh, Christina Applegate and uh, anchorman of course is hilarious. And I even like the, the kid Skylar something he's in a, a Santa Clarita diet and he's in the what hot American summer 10 years later show. He's uh, he's one of my favorite up and coming uh, young comedic actors, but nothing about this movie works uh, in my mind. The the relationship between the two leads doesn't work. There's no chemistry. This movie is a really bad offender at we're doing a remake slash reboot, probably reboot, but we have to tie it back to the original. And so here's an in your face thing. So I know it's coming. I knew it was coming, but there's a, there's a probably 10 minute scene where Chevy Chase shows up and I just was not buying any of it. I would have much rather them just do a straight complete reboot, not, not rely on any of the nostalgia. They even, they even do that really big meta joke where they, they talk about, no, 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 see the first vacation that we went on, but they just refer to it as the first vacation. They're like the first vacation is had, had two, had a boy and a girl and this one has two boys. And it's just like, I didn't like it in Jay and silent Bob reboot either. So like I, I really, I really did not like this movie. So whatever you're hearing people tell you, yeah, it's actually not that bad. Really just don't believe those people. And I don't want to talk about this movie anymore. (laughs) Well, the only vacation movie I've ever seen is Christmas Vacation. And that one is my favorite Christmas movie, actually. But I've never really ever had the urge to watch any of the other National Lampoon's vacation movies. So I guess even further cements that I'll stay away from this one. That is, that is also my experience. I had only seen Christmas vacation. I hear the original one is worth your time, but I, I think this one has soured me so much that I'm fine only watching Christmas vacation. Anyway, that's a wrap. So quick reminder that Sif pop writers room is a part of the studio DNA network. You can check out other great shows at studio DNA.media. And if you're interested in writing for sifpop.com or you want to get in contact with us, maybe send us a question to explore. Then go ahead and email us at writers room at sifpop.com. And I will take a look at that email. And if you want to support the show, help out with some costs that we pay for out of pocket, such as fees, equipment, and movie rentals, then you can go ahead and Venmo me at Schweitcastle, or you can DM me for PayPal if that's your preferred method of giving. No obligation to, but if you want to help us out, uh, make this a little bit easier for us to do, 
Um, doesn't cost much for us to do, but your support means a lot to us. So uh, last thing we're going to do is uh, we're going to give shout outs. So Robert, where can people find you? I actually have my own blog at roberts-thoughts.com where I write about movies and TV. I have a podcast that uh, complements that. So if you want to hear more of my voice and where I talk about things that I certainly like, no matter what, that'll be Robert's Thoughts Movie Cast. I have different fun guests on there. Aaron will be a guest on there pretty soon, actually. So if you like his voice, if you like my voice, you can come check that out. I also, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Rob's Thoughts. I have lots of movie opinions on there, as well as my Instagram, where I promote my stuff, Robert's Thoughts, uh, all one word. Um, so those are the places that you can find me, as well as sifpop.com. Yeah, make sure to make sure to give him a follow. Robert's always been a great person to just chat with, with movies with. And uh, I'm sure he'd love to extend that conversation to you as well. Uh, if you want to continue our conversation, or if you want to ask me any questions or uh, or whatever, you can find me on Twitter at Schweitcastle, or you can email Sifpop Writers Room, or just Writers Room at Sifpop.com. But that's going to do it for today. And so until next time, back to the Writers Room. Thank you.